Okay, I'm going to do some kind of noise. Beautiful. Welcome to Baby Lee Roth, the podcast about playlists. And now, here are Callie, Erica, and Bridget. Welcome to Baby Lee Roth, the podcast about playlists. Every week, we create a playlist based on a theme. This week's theme is crimes. (laughs) Because crimes are so cool, there's a lot of really good songs about them, and thus, we made a really good playlist, unlike most of our other playlists, which are very hard to listen to. This Um, is the most listenable yet, I would say. I strongly agree. Um, I'm so excited about how listenable it is that I just want to jump right in. Callie, please take it away. All right. My first song is I Don't Like Mondays by the Boomtown Rats. Written by Bob Geldof and keyboardist Johnny Fingers of the new Irish new wave band The Boomtown Rats, I Don't Like Mondays is about the Cleveland Elementary School shooting that took place in San Diego on January 29, 1979. 16-year-old Brenda Spencer opened fire at the school across the street from her home, killing a principal and custodian and injuring eight children. When questioned by a reporter about the motive of the shooting, she reportedly answered, I don't like Mondays. This livens up the day. And Bob Geldof, I think he, like read it come in because he was like in a studio giving an interview i think is what i read and um he read like the news report come in on something (laughs) some kind of like fax machine or something and he was inspired to write uh the song i don't like mondays so um brenda spencer was tried as an adult and pleaded guilty to two counts of murder and assault with a deadly weapon and was sentenced to 25 years to life in prison at the california institution for women in chino where she is still in prison to this day. Um, I don't like but Mondays was the Boomtown Rats' biggest hit in Ireland. Although less popular in the U.S., where it received extensive radio airplay, despite Spencer's family's attempts to prevent it, it is still their best-known hit. Bob Geldof would, of course, go on to co-write the well-intentioned, though Eurocentric, charitable Christmas banger, Band-Aids, Do They Know It's Christmas Time. And in 1985, he co-organized the Monster Rock concert and charity event, in that order, Live Aid. As for Johnny Fingers, he lives in Tokyo, writes and produces for artists, and he did the theme song for the anime B-Dex, which I've never seen, but I think it's pretty cool that he's just living his best life in Tokyo, writing anime themes. And, um, yeah, it's cool. <laughs> Do y'all have any thoughts on this song? <laughs> um, I, I didn't know it was uh, the creator of Band-Aid. Yes, Band-Aid and A Live song Aid. song I love. Well, Do They Know It's Christmas Time? is the song that I love in particular. It's like a top 10 Christmas song for me. <laughs> Jesus Christ. It's a good one. Just about <laughs> how it... Rich is just so disappointed. Just about how it doesn't snow in Africa. <laughs> so we talked about this in the group chat that I hate this song, but not because it's problematic, just because of its poor quality. Yeah, I mean, it's not. it's not great. It just somehow is great. I don't know how to explain it, but if you know, you know. <laughs> I don't know. 
I also picked this song for the police because I found it interesting that in 1979, the song was written about a mass shooting in the United States. And today, 44 years later, we continue to be under a constant threat of gun violence in this country. So it's sadly relevant. It seems like it's just forever going to be relevant. It's an evergreen song about murdering children at a school with a gun. For no fucking reason. It's real fucking sad. It's real fucking sad. This is something... um, just to be a little bit shallower for one sec. I really like this about kind of the more new wavy songs and um, genre that so many of the songs are like really peppy, upbeat music and dark to sad um, lyrical content a lot of times. Of course, I can't think of another example right now. I mean, there's a lot Um, of Elvis Costello songs like that. Yeah. Uh, Born in the USA by Bruce Springsteen. Hmm. Uh, no, is the USA new wave though? No, no, no. It, it is peppy. New wave. I've, I missed the part where you said new wave because I was only <laughs> somehow half you listening. Know, the, the, I missed the, the, the new one of the best examples of new wave. Springsteen. <laughs> <laughs> Love that popular new wave artist. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> is Elvis Costello new wave? Yes. Yes. Oh. Great. Moving on. <laughs> I actually thought this was Elvis Costello. Like, I knew it was Boomtown Rats, but I thought maybe he was in the Boomtown Rats. But no. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a similar sound. Um, I knew about this song because my mom listened to it all the time. And I just, I heard the shooting references in the song. I just was like, oh, it's hyperbole. Nope. It's very literally about a school shooting. Yeah. I, I have some songs on my playlist where that was my experience, too, where I was like, oh, this song's great. And then I was like, oh, Oh, I'm. I feel very uh, dumb, <laughs> but I'll. I miss song explanations all the time. But this is like halfway through listening to it for the first time. I was like, "Oh, this is definitely about a school shooting." So I felt. I felt very proud of myself on this one. But don't worry, my next pick. I had no idea, <laughs> which is real sad. This that is actually kind of shocking. Should Why we don't go you? To it? Yeah, tell us. You want to know about yeah. it? <laughs> okay, so my first pick for this playlist is Tom Jones' Delilah. First of all, the Wikipedia page for Delilah suggests that it's structurally a power ballad. So I've decided that that is Baby Lee Roth canon. Delilah is a power ballad. Moving on. Uh, the legendary Tom Jones is a Welsh singer-songwriter. He has a robust catalog spanning several decades, and he's been a fixture in pop culture for so long that I don't think I need to list all of his accolades. But I will tell you, if you go to his Wikipedia page, you will find out that Alvira, Mistress of the Dark, lost her virginity to him, and she said that it sucked. <laughs> but I digress. <laughs> <laughs> so Delilah is one of Tom Jones's later hits for 1968. Um, and it's so dang catchy that perhaps you, like me, did not realize that it is about stabbing a woman to death out of jealousy. <laughs> so the song tells the tale of a man who catches his lover cheating on him. He waits outside her house all night long to confront her. When she finally does, she laughs at him. And then I held the knife and she laughed no more. He's stabbed her. Um, the song is told from the murderer's perspective, and he claims he's a slave for her love. And in the end, he sits inside his own apartment waiting for the police to break down the door and arrest him. 
So somewhere around 2014, Welsh rugby fans began to sing Delilah as an unofficial anthem. And Tom Jones even performed it at Wembley Stadium in 2015 in Wales's defeat over England. Several high ranking officials began to ask fans to kindly stop singing it as they claim it glorified violence to women, which, yes, it sure does. She's murdered. Um, Yet they persisted. And Tom Jones himself was like, no, no, it's fine. They're not thinking about what it's really about. Like, no, it's it's all good. It's just a catchy little jingle. However, upon researching it further, I discovered that in February 2023, just a couple weeks ago, the Welsh Rugby Union officially banned it. And then in research for this podcast, I decided to look up the criminal history of all of the artists that I chose. So Tom Jones doesn't really have anything specific. As far as we know, he personally never stabbed a lover to death, but he did flee Wales in 1974 due to uh, a 98% income tax, which I was I was told to note was only um, there's a threshold for income so above a certain amount that was taxed Uh, but it does make him guilty of tax evasion Uh, and then he moved to los angeles bought a house from dean martin which he then sold in 1988 to none other than the winner if you'll recall from our sailing episode the winner of the most blockbuster movie awards nicholas cage i think we can safely say which is corroborated by elvira that one of the crimes Tom Jones is guilty of is having mid dick. <laughs> <laughs> Did you know women He's used to throw panties at him? He that was like something yes. he's really famous for. Is- well, see, okay, even when you were talking about this before you mentioned the Elvira fact in our group chat, I was like thinking, well, oh, Tom Jones is sexy. Right. Apparently, that does not equate. Well, not apparently. We knew this already, but you know, in the in this specific ca- in this specific case, apparently that that does not uh, necessarily it doesn't mean that, translate to being yeah. actually good at sex. Those yeah. are they're just two very different skills: is presenting yourself and being desirable, and then actually the fucking part. Yeah, the yeah. mechanical Super act. <laughs> it's, um, it's like he, all of his strength and sexuality went into his appearance and being loud yeah. and there's like whole, there's like nothing there's nothing below the waist his whole balls are just in his throat um, he claimed <laughs> he claimed to have slept with i think it was like 250 women a year at his peak so he was really out there like working hard okay that's still nothing that's, compared to wilt chamberlain though that's also 250 very disappointed women per wilt year chamberlain's math is wrong though bridget <laughs> analyst sports analyst bridget will you tell us <laughs> the wilt chamberlain information for reference oh didn't we already talk about this we talked about this in our chat Oh, we did not talk about this at any point in this recording. No. Okay, so he did some bullshit math (laughs) where he, background, Wilt Chamberlain claims to have slept with over 10,000 women, 20,000 women. Um, 20,000. 20,000 women. And apparently the way he got this information was at one point in his life, he was making tally marks somewhere of how many people he was sleeping with every week. And then he like took some off of that amount. Stop me if I'm saying it wrong. No, this is correct. <laughs> he took some <laughs> some arbitrary amount off of that to be like conservative and multiplied it by how many days or how many weeks he'd been having sex. And he started when he was 15. And he somehow came out with 20,000 women, which I think we figured out that over a 10 year period that would require him to be sleeping with like four women a day. And I'm sorry, yeah. sometimes you're injured. Sometimes you're tired or hungover. Does that mean that some days he was fucking eight women? 
Come on. Hey, if you got to make that quota, you're going to you're going to work to do that. I guess. The math is absurd. And he's like, yeah, I just took it off there. So, you know, I assumed. Yeah. And I'm like, what? I'm sure I do believe that Wilt Chamberlain has slept with more women than anyone else can possibly claim to. I'll buy that. But 20,000 is a really, really high number. I just also the the data for that, he says in his biography, was taken from a one week sample. Just one week. Yeah, that's a one week. And then he multiplied it. And I'm like, my guy. That is incredibly poor (laughs) methodology. I learned a lot about methodology from Michael Hobbs, podcaster extraordinaire, who is a methodology nerd. And um, that is bad methodology. I think that he would agree. Gene Simmons claims to have slept with between 4,600 to 4,800 women. 100, not 1,000. Yeah, so it's more conservative, but it, I still think it's corny. I, I Like, I don't think I'm reading what his methodology is here. <laughs> I don't, I don't <laughs> the adjective corny <laughs> to describe it. It is. It is. I think it's corny to keep track of that kind of stuff. How can you care that? I mean, first of all, it's like so as soon people? or as soon as what? Well, but even if you are, as soon as you're done, you just get your little pad and paper out and, and put yeah. a tally mark. You put it in your journal. Corny. I mean, I'm right, like, pro people. I'm gonna write it in my diary. I am pro like sexual gymnastics and Olympics and doing it, everything that you can in that arena if that's what you want. But I just feel like if you're at the point where it's literally just numbers, are you even enjoying it? Well, that's what I'm saying, A. And also, B, is like, if you want to keep track of it for your own use, that's cool. But if you're just using it to say some shit in the press, that's corny. Yeah. That's corny. It's corny. Judges ruling corny. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Bridget, (laughs) it's your turn. (laughs) Um, That's great. I turned 21 in prison doing life without parole. No one could steer me right, but Mama tried. Mama tried. Merle Haggard is one of my all-time favorite musicians. Um, this song is mostly autobiographical. Merle really did turn 21 in prison, although not for murder like the narrator of Mama Tried. He was in prison for escaping a different lesser prison where he was being punished for stealing stuff. Merle grew up in a boxcar that his father had converted into a house in Oildale, California. His mom did raise him by her, him and all of his siblings by herself after their father died when Merle was nine. And then Merle borrowed a guitar from his brother and started learning to play when he was around 12. And then he started getting arrested when he was 13. Um, He and his friend would ride freight trains, which is actually illegal unless you have a ticket. Um... And they would go out to like Texas and they would commit like armed robberies of stores. And he, anytime he got arrested, he would immediately try to escape. And then finally he ended up in San Quentin um, after he escaped from a lesser prison. And he did not try to escape from there because he saw one of Johnny Cash's in prison concerts. Um, The performance inspired him to join the San Quentin country band and to focus more on music and stay on the straight and narrow when he got out. And when he did that, he became very successful and his album Mama Tried came out in 1968 and it contains this song, which is so succinct and elegant and simple. It's just every note has its purpose. And that's emblematic of the Bakersfield sound, which was intentionally 
very simple and stripped down in contrast to Nashville's more produced sound. I had never heard this song before, and I enjoyed it very much. It's cute. It's fun to sing along with. It, it is cute. <laughs> <laughs> another another adjective <laughs> that will. <laughs> Callie, do you have any thoughts about country music? Well, I like some country. Um, this is an example of country music. Yeah, I do success. like. <laughs> I find old country, like older country music, though, is very uh, different than what would be considered like new country music and especially like like Merle Haggard and your and your Johnny Cash's and even up to like your Willie Nelson and Waylon Jennings like those kinds of like old country usually those songs are about killing a man <laughs> many a lot many of crime of in country people, mm. yeah there's a lot of crime in country and and a lot but there's also like a lot of like heart and they're very like beautiful songwriting and then now it just kind of um it's it's turned into something that's very like um <laughs> that's, formulaic she my character sexy yeah i do you know that's my third favorite kenny but uh <laughs> i um but, i don't i don't know but, a yeah. lot about country music i guess like whenever i hear something like this i like it but I haven't listened mm -hmm. too much. I like the Flying Burrito Brothers, and I like whenever the Rolling Stones would do something country adjacent, but I wow. don't listen to a whole lot of country country music um, just because I don't, I don't know. I just don't think to listen to it. But My, my grandma it, likes a lot of older country music, so that's how I was introduced to like Johnny Cash, particularly by her and my mom playing us Boy Named Sue. <laughs> When we were little kids. <laughs> Country music is very generational and also very lifestyle dependent. Like, I don't think people really listen to country if their parents didn't listen to country and or they're not like truck people, you know? Yeah, I come from a family of very not truck people. Yeah. Like if, you, if you can imagine the opposite of truck people, that's what my family is. We, uh, we have some Appalachian adjacent roots. So, um... Mm -hmm. <laughs> there's, there's a bit of like country i mean there's also like um kind of a um a class a, a class demographic not to sound like shitty but it is like countries for like old country at least was definitely for like the outlaws and the working men and, and your cowboys and stuff. People who aren't, you know, people who don't have second homes, maybe. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, I was like, did I just say something like real dumb? No, it's, um, it's true. Like old country people really were like Loretta Lynn really was a coal miner's daughter and really did grow up dirt poor. And a lot of people who listened to it were also poor or... Um, yeah, from the country. Yeah, and now it's, and like the Appalachia is like that's very where it, poor. Like it's generational poorness. It's the opposite. It's the opposite of <laughs> yeah. of generational wealth. Like my next door neighbor at one point when I lived in some crazy house on Ohio, the Ohio State campus, whatever he was, he had been raised in West Virginia, and he was like, yeah, the first house that I grew up in, we didn't have indoor plumbing, and this was he was like that was the eighties, man. It wasn't that long ago. So, um, anyway, old country music is wonderful. Oh, sidebar, sidebar. Had either of you seen the show Tales from the Tour Bus? Yes. No. I haven't watched it's, the country one. I've only oh, watched the fun, country which, 
oh. which speaks to my sensibilities. Yes. I, I watched the funk one first. There's two seasons. The first season is country singers. The second season is funk singers. It's produced by Mike Judge. I love Mike Judge. He can do no wrong. Um, but it's the first. So the, I watched the second season first, which was funk. It's Rick James. There's Prince or there, well, there's Morris Day in the time. There's Bootsy Collins, what have you. And I was like, you know what? I really like this show. I'm going to watch the country one, even though I don't know a lot about it. And it's great for getting to know a lot about old country. And also each of those guys has killed a man. <laughs> They've all it's all crime. George Strait was all crime. Like I can't name them. George all- Strait or George Jones? Oh, George Jones. Oh, <laughs> I mean, Wait. George Strait. Who knows what that no, man's guilty of? I'm an of. idiot. You're going to ha- Oh, man. No. Everybody's going to be like. Is George Strait the All My Exes Live in Texas yeah. guy? Or yeah, George Strait's like a new guy. It's George Jones. Because it's. Uh, no, I think it's now Baby Lee Roth canon that George Strait has killed a man. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway. um, It's not your fault. I was in 4 H. I know too much about country. <laughs> Anyway, George Strait got a big old hat. Tammy Wynette. (laughs) (laughs) George Strait and Tammy Wynette committed many crimes. Watch the episodes. There you go. He's in straight again. Oh my God. It's George Jones, everybody. We have to move on. We have to move on because I'll keep saying this. You know what country guy, like, um, Lil Nas X, no. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm trying to remember what his name. Orville. Orville yeah, oh, I like Orville Peck. That's, Isn't I that like the popcorn guy? That's <laughs> Orville Redenbacher. <laughs> Orville Peck is the cowboy with the fringy mask. Yeah. He's part oh, of 2020 gay that's, cowboy that's, revolution. That's, that's my problem with a lot of uh, country music is it's not gay enough. And Oh, man, you're right. But Orville Peck and Lil yeah. Nas X. Yeah, <laughs> they're spicing it up for everybody. That's the thing I, I like about names. country is the spangles and like the flair, the fringe. You should watch Coal Miner's Daughter. You will fucking love it. Yeah. Okay. We'll do. Great. Okay. Will you also please tell us about this next wonderful, perfect song that I love so much? Hey, kids. Want to hear more about gun violence? <laughs> Skid Row's 18 in Life is another song about what happens when you shoot people. Though unlike I Don't Like Mondays, this time it was accidental. The protagonist of the song 18 in Life, Ricky, is 18 years old, drunk, and gun-happy, he doesn't realize his gun is loaded and ends up shooting his friend. Now he has received, you guessed it, a life sentence for murder. 18 in Life is Skid Row's biggest hit and one of the best power ballads, possibly the best power ballad of the late 80s glam metal power ballad boom. Also, hilariously in 2015, Skid Row re-recorded 18 in Life with then vocalist Tony Harnell. And I just love when bands kick out a member and then re-record their most famous song with that member, like what Kiss did with Beth in 1988. It's, it's just so petty and bitchy, and rock stars are just so the petty. It's <laughs> just the worst. And there's a I learned from a um, uh, Sebastian Bach's book that there's a lot of like petty bitchy stuff between him and the former members of Skid Row. So that's fun. Um, 
Another fun fact that I learned from reading Sebastian Bach's book, 18 and Life on Skid Row, from my other podcast, Headbangers Book Club, is that the video to 18 and Life, uh, in, in, sorry, in the video to 18 and Life, Sebastian Bach had just had sex and describes himself as wet from his waist to his knees. I'll let you decide what the fuck that means. No. Um, I mean, we know what it means, <laughs> but I'll, I'll let you decide if that's true or not. Um, but that's probably why he's only shot from the torso up in the video because his dick was too wet for MTV. Gross. <laughs> Any thoughts? Only um, gross. Well, I looked up the music video. I was like, surely that can't be the thing. And really it is from the waist up. Also, my God. Yeah. He's keeping track. It's corny. <laughs> We've entered corniness okay. territory. So, uh, counterpoint. I don't know if this was corny because even though he was talking about it, it was more kind of like he's just telling a story. Instead of this being like, I took, like, I calculated every time I had sex and wrote it down. Like, he wasn't even, it wasn't even about the sex necessarily. He just remembers having a wet dick during the video. You know what I'm saying? Like, this is just kind of a funny anecdote you would tell someone. It's not like a calculated, like, spreadsheet of all the times he had sex you know what i'm saying yeah <laughs> i know okay. what you're saying okay I, have i have it. i convinced you though but sebastian bach of all it. people is not corny <laughs> <laughs> i think it's a little corny to be having sex directly before you know you're about to shoot a music video is that corny or is that cool it's not Cool. I think it's pretty fucking cool. <laughs> um, did anybody watch the new edition limited series that was on, I think it was on BET a few years ago? No. Oh, I wanted to so oh, bad, but I never, I, so I didn't have good. like whatever I needed. Oh, you got to look it, up though. how to watch it because it's really good. And I, in one of them, like this, this one of the, <sighs> must be the second or third part. That was the opens, one with all the wigs, right? Oh, so many wigs, yes. Speaking of it, speaking of wet things. It opens up with Bobby Brown about to record on my own from Ghostbusters 2, and they're like, but where's Bobby Brown? And they go into his trailer and he's fucking two girls at the same time. Yeah. Fucking so. sick. And when you li- when you listen to that song, you're like, this sounds like a man who's just come. This and that's why fucks. it fucking rules. Yeah. <laughs> Not only does this man fuck. He just fucked, and that's why this song is so good. I do want to follow up to our ghost episode and say that is the best Bobby Brown song. And a lot of Bobby Brown has like a pretty extensive catalog. Yeah, like I'm not saying that everything else by Bobby Brown is bad. I'm just saying that On Our Own is so fucking good that it surpasses all of those other Bobby Brown Yeah, exactly. I agree. I listened to it multiple times. I was like, yeah, Callie's, yeah, I agree with Callie. I'm on board. I'm so glad you gave that such careful consideration. I did. You know, these are the deep thoughts that I have in my tiny, smooth, cashew-sized brain that just bounces around when you're using you know, the brain cell. You know, though, but that's what we're trying to do here at Baby Lee Roth is make you think. Yeah, this, this is a, this is a thought-provoking, philosophical podcast. <laughs> yeah, and this week's thought prov- thought-provoking scenario is, did Sebastian Bach... Have a wet dick? Oh no, that's wait, I know what we can do. Are we still on YouTube? I guess or on Instagram? Here's a question. Comment down below. Would you fuck right before the video to 18 in life if you were the main person being recorded? (laughs) 
Wait, it's <laughs> really hard to answer. Second question. Is it cool or corny to come yeah, before you, you have to be on set for a video? <laughs> Smash that like button and comment down below. Tune in next week when we've had enough time to answer. Yeah, can we please get some fan mail so we can read the responses? Clowns weigh in. <laughs> Different kind of clowns this week. <laughs> Just our, ourselves and our listeners. <laughs> All right. And another fun fact, just because I like to mention this whenever I talk about Sebastian Bach, is that in 2016, my friend and I went to the book signing event at Schuller Books in Lansing, Michigan. When 18 and Life on Skid Row was released, I bought a hardcover book with the poster that folds out. And I waited for like three hours to meet Sebastian Bach. Was it worth it? Uh, that remains to be seen. We got our book signed, though. And the whole time they played 18 in Life, Youth Gone Wild, and I Remember You, seemingly on loop. So I heard 18 in Life like a million times that night. And I met Sebastian Bach, and it was great. Don't know if his dick was wet. Did not pay attention to that. Was he nice? He was nice enough. Was he hot? No comment. <laughs> Did you want to touch his hair? Mm, seemed kind of, you know, I don't want to cast aspersions on anybody's hair. But it seemed a little dry, and I feel like he could probably use some moisture, much like <laughs> his moisturized. How, how, like he needs to split the difference. He's conditioning between, the wrong body parts. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's too much moisture between your knees and your waist, or whatever, and not enough on your your hair. Pussy juice Come could on, actually man. be really bad for your hair. I'm not saying with semen. I'm just saying like it, the the concept of moisture. Actually, semen is probably good for your hair. Pussy juice, bad. The protein. Yeah. <laughs> Why is that? I guess just like, well, let's not get into it. This, pussy juice, <laughs> it's very acidic. <laughs> that's Well, that's what I was going to say. That's after I thought through it for a second. Because here on Baby Less, we make you think. Yeah, we're it's a chemistry and philosophy. And... Um, physics, like electricity. Erica, would you like to talk to us about the next song? Yes, I would. So, a big part of movies in the 80s was who you could get to do the soundtrack. So, for instance, the Bee Gees are synonymous with Saturday Night Fever. Kenny Loggins had multiple movie soundtrack hits with Top Gun, Footloose, and Caddyshack, to name only a few. And, of course, there's Ray Parker Jr. and Bobby Brown with huge hits describing the plots of Ghostbusters and Ghostbusters 2. As discussed on our Ghost Podcasts uh, episode a couple of weeks ago and also about five minutes ago. <laughs> so it makes sense for an artist as prolific as Prince to partake in this. But the thing about Prince is that he's always going to do it his way on his terms. Electric Chair is from Prince's quote-unquote soundtrack for Tim Burton's Batman, released in 1989. I chose this song because, number one, I was egged on by Bridget, and number two, Prince, supposedly from the point of view of the Joker, sings about meeting a woman so enticing that were anyone to know his internal thoughts, he would be found guilty and deserving of the electric chair for the sex crimes that he desires to commit. Also, it's a banger. I fucking love it. So... There's a lot of oral and written histories about Prince's Batman soundtrack, each source with their own credibility and intimate knowledge, but they don't all add up to paint the same picture, which is why I think it's really fun to talk about this album. 
Prince's manager, Albert Magnoli, who helped bring Purple Rain to life, wanted to get Prince back in the spotlight after his last two albums, Sign of the Times and Love Sexy, did not have much commercial success. Reps from Warner Brothers and Tim Burton all said in interviews that, oh, yes, we had him write an album as his interpretation of rough cuts of the movie. We were FedExing him our dailies and he was writing music as he was watching the movie. And that sounds great. However... If you look at interviews with his band at the time and some of his love interests, you'll find slightly varying perspectives. For instance, the song Vicky Waiting is simply a modified version of a song he wrote for one of his girlfriends at the time, Anna Garcia, who he nicknamed Anna Fantastic. And that song was called Anna Waiting. (laughs) He changed the name and was like, there's Vicky Waiting, Vicky Vale. Uh, Anna Garcia also claims that Lemon Crush is about her because she liked to put lemon on everything. And when she came to visit Prince in Minneapolis, he took her out to get a Lemon Crush, which is like a lemon slushy or something. And then there's the song Scandalous, which has its own Prince lore, which the studio claims to have been written specifically for the Batman soundtrack. But according to Prince Vault, it was recorded in October 1988, which was a full two months before Prince was even contacted about the Batman soundtrack in December 88. It did, however, get up, end up getting reworked into its own single called The Scandalous Sex Suite, which involves a 20 minute single said to include samples of Prince and Kim Basinger having sex. So please, by all means, go take a listen and decide for yourself. Um, I have listened. It's very quiet in the mix. I think it's possible to make those noises without actually having sex. But people love to be like, oh, they're fucking. So you listen for yourself and, you know, feel just see what you're vibing on. Um, But I digress. My point is, depending who you ask, the collaboration either went super well or super weird. (laughs) It's just simply recycled and shoehorned already existing songs crammed into the Batman soundtrack. My final thoughts on Prince. In keeping with the theme of this particular episode and looking up any crimes committed by the artist, Prince has a pretty clean record, save for one instance in 1980, where he and keyboardist Dr. Fink were caught stealing a megaphone from an airplane. Uh, They were taken to jail, but when they got there, it turned into a meet and greet and they were let go. (laughs) And then also one time in 1999, police were called to a Chanhassen, Minnesota movie theater after Prince was caught fooling around with a woman in the back row. But no arrests were made, so he got tough on a technicality. No crime. Crime free. Pesky, pesky Prince. I would say, although it's pretty obvious, um, you know, regardless of who you believe, we can pretty much all agree that these are shoehorned in. Like, come on now. Every last scandalous one has fuck all to do with Batman. I'm sorry. It's um, it is like the way that the 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 studio chose to talk about it. They're like, yeah, each song is written from a different perspective. You know, Party Man is the Joker, and and so is Electric Chair, and then this one's written from the perspective of Bruce Wayne. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> is it? But is it <laughs> this? And I like like nowhere in Batman canon. Well, I don't know. I won't speak on that because I don't know enough about it. I was going to say, is, is is Joker canonically really like a partier necessarily? I guess he throws like parades and stuff. But Have you yeah. ever seen the video for Party Man? Well, yeah, I've seen that, but I'm saying in, in other Batman lore. Yeah. Oh, I can't comment on that. I only know about Prince. I don't know anything about Batman. Guess how many Batman movies I've seen? Well, it's none. According it's to the notes, zero. So I'm going to guess that. <laughs> Batman, I mean, the Joker is supposed to be, like, a good time kind of guy. 
No, I thought he was like deranged, but I didn't, you know, he's crazy in a way that makes him like to do he like his whole thing is like taking things that are fun and making them scary and crimey like parties, parades, circuses. Mm. Parties are already pretty scary to me. That's why I don't go to many. Hard same. Do you like parades? <laughs> no, they're also scary. I don't like parades. All right. Well, the wow. Joker is already, he's already won. The terrorists I, have won. He's, he's not my boy. <laughs> but I will say, all the Jokers, I know, Erica, you probably can't weigh in on this. All the Jokers, though, Jack Nicholson's Joker seems like the one who fucks. So it kind of makes sense that like some of these songs would be on here. Yeah, it's a, it's. And I'm not I'm not saying he's the one I want to have sex with. I'm just saying <laughs> if you put if you line up all the Jokers and you like Jack Jack Nicholson fucks in movies. Come on now. I I go with that. Yeah, his dick is definitely wet. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> So what a weird turn this one has. <laughs> yeah, this, we really, uh, despite not having many songs about it, we really did lean into the sex crime thing. Do you think um, <laughs> that Prince and Bugs Bunny are like spiritually related, Erica? Okay, Prince's Party Man in the Party Man video specifically, yes. What? <laughs> Otherwise, only sometimes. You don't think? You yeah, because he does. He does the like Looney Tunes thing where like light someone's cigar and then it blows up in their face and yeah that's that's literally the whole music video but But prince as a being i feel like these are some bugs bunny ass crimes though these are things bugs bunny would do steal a megaphone from an airplane this this reminds that's true (laughs) this reminds me of in wayne's world when I think Garth asked Wayne, like, when when Bugs Bunny put the dress on, did you, did you ever attract to her? The other day, someone at work said I looked like sexy Garth. Oh, that's oh, hot. I don't. I honestly don't know how to answer it. It more so seems like uh like teenager crimes, like dumb teen. Because like I used uh, man, we used to steal so much stupid shit. Not because we wanted to steal. It wasn't like shoplifting. It would be like you don't know, feel like Prince has kind of a um like a chaotic like a god of mischief kind of thing going on yes yes yes, totally which i think is why i like yes like the stuff he does i think that was stupid shit we would do oh for sure and i think that was a lot of his private life personality as well as opposed to like kind of his persona although he did definitely like kind of he would he would troll people and troll like the public when when that was an option but the stories that you hear like the anecdotes that you hear from people that worked with him he was definitely like a bugs bunny person yeah (laughs) i I mean like again it's one of those things where i'm like takes one to know one yeah exactly (laughs) i'll try to always do the funniest thing at any given time (laughs) but um but yeah, there's there's all kinds of like anecdotes that you'll hear from different people who worked with him. And it's everything from like the 1980s stealing a megaphone because they thought it would be funny. And it, and it is, though, to, because it's one of those things where it's like if you steal the funniest thing to steal. Yeah, that's always going to be funny. Yeah, right. That's what's Bugs Bunny. About but it, it goes all the way up through his whole life. Like it, in 2014, he released a song called The Breakdown. He only ever played it live one time and he like cries through it. And it's like he's like, it's probably the most personal song I've ever written. And his band members like were like, yes, yeah, it's a very personal song to him. So when he released it, the music video, there's no music video. It's just a still of like that cartoon meme of the guy lying on the ground staring at the ceiling and like a puddle of like tears on either side of his face. <laughs> it's just that. And that's like Prince choosing to do the funniest thing at the time. <laughs> it's his like easily most personal song about his adult life and his regrets and his, you know, 
and his like innermost thoughts and he's like oh but put this meme (laughs) (laughs) that's silly bridget you want to tell us about your next song i sure do i would like to talk to you about bad company by bad company from the album bad company This song is so such a corny lifted truck with bullet holes stickers ass song that you would probably think that it is by an American band, but no. Bad Company was formed in England and this album came out in 1974. And rock critics just absolutely love to touch and caress this album so lovingly, <laughs> even though it's very, <laughs> very empty, boring rock and roll. Um, The song is kind of vague about what exactly the narrator did. He was born with a gun in his hand and he deserted from the army. And then now he's making his final stand. It's not, there's no content. It's empty. It's just imagery with no, it's signifiers with no sign. And I think that's why Timothy McVeigh liked it so much. (laughs) He used to play this song inside his tank during the first Iraq war, you know, to get pumped up to murder people. Then he committed the Oklahoma City bombing, the second most fatal terror attack in U.S. history. And I really think the song's empty but violent vision of masculinity dovetails perfectly with McVeigh's philosophy that the person with the biggest guns is the one who should be in charge. Um, Listening to the song is like watching a Camaro IROC drive past you. And um, that concludes this essay. (laughs) That was one of the most beautifully delivered, most succinct <laughs> descriptions that I've heard of this song yet. So thank you. <laughs> Possibly any song. I I like to think that perhaps Timothy McVeigh read um, that in 1991, John Mellencamp called Paul Rogers the best rock singer ever and was so upset with that assessment <laughs> that he committed crimes. I'm sure he that Timothy McVeigh dogs. agreed with that assessment. He probably thought that too. But he's dead now, so who cares what he thinks? We'll never, he died? Well, we can never ask Timothy him McVeigh? Yeah. Yeah, he got executed like the fastest anyone's ever been executed. Oh, fuck. I forgot about that. Yeah. Oh, I'm, to- I'm sorry. My brain is just filled with garbage. Your brain is filled with things I that aren't rem- true crime facts. remember. Why would you? That's true. Mine's filled with Prince facts. Yeah. Misheard lyrics. And, uh... Human anatomy. (laughs) Yeah, there we go. Mm, One semi-useful thing. All right, I don't have anything else to say about this song. I just really needed everyone to know how these guys are just a bunch of limp-dick dorks. That that prime beget crime? Empty-headed... Bad bad company with Milk Ralphs from Mata Hoople and the former vocalist and bassist of King Crimson are some limptic dorks. Excuse you? <laughs> Look, the lyrics to this song are bad. <laughs> they make me angry. What Did you know that they were uh, signed to Led Zeppelin's record label Swan Song? Did you know that the name is from a Victorian manners guide? <laughs> <laughs> Did you know that Bad Company recorded the song Feel Like Making Love, which is to... Sex songs as this song is to cry songs. Yeah, just <laughs> fucking empty, toxic <laughs> the most, masculinity. 
but also like the lead, just like no, because I like ACDC sexual songs. Yeah, but Bad Company is just like a very poor imitation. of Yeah, it's a poor man's ACDC. It's just so. It's so like my guitar's my dick. Like, dude, you're from England. <laughs> it can't be. <laughs> <laughs> That's um, for George Strait. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to continue to roast myself for doing <laughs> that as much I did for cryptids. That's great. Uh, we don't have to keep offending Callie with how much I don't like this band. Um, no, I don't. I don't like Bad Company either. Oh, great. Oh, my God. You know, just despite Paul Rogers being, as, you know, John Cougar Mellencamp told us, the best rock singer. Of all the, time. The best uh, uh, of uh, all time. Not oh when God. Sebastian Bach exists. I don't just, like Bad Company, but I don't hate Bad Company. I just, they just sound like noise to me. It's just like, uh, I, yeah, I've it's heard just, this on Classic Rock Radio a million times. It's Whatever. basically like whale song. Like, <laughs> like the Rain Sounds <laughs> playlist, but for like guys who drive a lifted truck. Let's move on to this Danny Brown song. It's really good. <laughs> Yeah, so Bridget told me to use more songs I like after the mess that was that was uh, Cryptids. So I did. Um, and I used this one. This is a song off of Danny Brown's 2016 album, Atrocity Exhibition, and it's about the realities of drug dealing. Hook hit the block, hit the stash, and they found some. Block is all love for a bag of some pistols. Now we in the county writing letters, I miss you. Tell me what I don't know. Hook Ray came Danny Brown started dealing drugs as a teenager to support himself and his family and intended to stop once he got his first legal case. But um, he continued dealing drugs and eventually went to jail for eight months. Tell Me What I Don't Know is about this period of time and presents a less glamorous picture of dealing drugs in street life. And to me, this is all my interpretation at this point, but um, it's based in fact. And <clears throat> I feel that the song is a man in his mid-30s, looking back at his teenage self and dissecting the actions of his younger self. And it speaks to the cyclical nature of street life and what makes it difficult to get out of. And I think it's kind of an interesting perspective because I feel like a lot of, um, like, aging rappers... Because at this point, Danny Ram was in his mid-30s, I think, when this came out. I feel like a lot of his contemporaries and people his age kind of look back at their teenage and younger, like, 20... 20s years of um, dealing drugs and being in street life and talking about kind of like the more glamorous parts, even if they're even if there is like some reality to it, um, it's still like they're still rapping about dealing drugs all the time. And whenever Danny Brown mentions um, like his past, a lot of the time there seems to be if it's not necessarily regret, it's like more so like the realities. like this is what it was like. It's not as glamorous as just like getting money and all this stuff that was part of it. But there's a lot of really dangerous and upsetting and just kind of pointless <laughs> pointlessness to dealing drugs as well. So I think it's kind of an interesting perspective and it's a cool song. The samples are cool. And yep. What are y'all thoughts? This was another one I, I had never heard and I enjoyed it. Same. I didn't know this guy at oh. all. And it's really good. I like that his album is named the same thing as a Joy Division song. Joy Division is Baby Lee Roth alumni. <laughs> so that's also important to note the baby Lee Roth extended universe expands <laughs> and yeah Danny Brown's from Detroit so that's why I included him and I like the song but also you know I like to put Detroit music on here it's important want to talk about horses 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> you guys want to talk about horse crimes? Horse crimes. Yeah. CSI horse crimes. So, <laughs> uh, so I absolutely love this song. Because like the two other songs I chose before, it is extremely catchy and it lulls you in. And then, oh, it's crime. My challenge was answered in less than a heartbeat. The handsome young stranger lay dead on the floor. Out through the back door of roses I ran. Out where the horses were tied. So the song is El Paso by country music star Marty Robbins from the album Gunfighter Ballads and Trail Songs. So perhaps that gives you an idea of what it's about. So this song is about a lovely young cowboy singing about his love for a Mexican dancer, Felina, in El Paso, Texas. He sees her often at Rose's Cantina and becomes smitten. It's a beautiful love story until he shows up one night to see her getting cozy with another cowboy. And obviously the next logical step is gunfight. Our narrator murders the new man and he's like, oh, fuck, I gotta get out of here. So he steals a horse and he rides off into the Badlands to hide. Some undetermined period of time passes and our cowboy reveals that his love for Felina is much stronger than his fear of death. So he risks it all to go back to Rose's cantina and see her again. On his way there, he is assaulted by a posse. He utters one of my favorite understatements of all time as he is shot singing. Something is dreadfully wrong as he's shot. <laughs> and then he dies in his love Felina's arms. And this song, I found out, has two crimes of equal severity, murder and horse theft. Um, in the Wild West, horse theft was considered on par with murder because to steal someone's horse, you had to be truly devoid of all character and integrity because you were leaving them stranded in this area of like this vast expanse and you couldn't really get anywhere. You couldn't work. You were just trapped. And so... That's why horse theft is was such a big deal. And also, I've played or watched enough people playing Red Dead Redemption to know that uh, horse theft is a pretty grave offense. And once you've stolen a horse, your only option is to kill everyone that saw you and flee the area. So that's my, my experience playing Red Dead Redemption, which is definitely like, I think it has like a bit of factual accuracy in there. That's the impression I've gotten from watching a lot of Clint Eastwood movies is that horse theft is definitely bad, bad, bad news. You're going to get stringed up. Yeah, you got to. You can't just take somebody's horse. You can't. Murder is like, I mean, it sucks, but whatever. If you're going to die, you die. But you can't just steal a horse. You really can't. It's not fair to the horse. All right, this song is called Code Blue, and it's by a little band called TSOL, which stands for True Sounds of Liberty. It's a pretty straightforward song about an incel fucking corpses. TSOL is the 80s SoCal hardcore analog to The Damned in that they started out being a pretty like straightforward punk band that sang a lot of like political lyrics and then morphed into more of a goth, horrorcore, death rock kind of sound. They formed in 1978 and allegedly got their instruments by smash and grabbing a music store. Um, although crime. they <laughs> got them through crime. They weren't arrested or convicted. They just, I guess, told people about it. 
Um, their style is heavily influenced by horror, as you can tell by the lyrics to this disgusting song. Um, death rock was almost like a sub, it was a subgenre of punk and the punk scene in so SoCal was already like very gatekeepery and people were getting their asses kicked all the time. And, um, there was a lot of like, this is true punk and that's not, and that kind of bullshit. Uh, bands like TSOL and 45 Grave got a lot of backlash from quote unquote true punks over because they were so theatrical and wore like makeup on stage and didn't always sing about political stuff. Unlike, you know, Black Flag and their very political hit six pack. Um, I digress. <laughs> anyway, Code Blue, uh, I think they wrote it on purpose to offend and disgust. And that is just the essence of punk. This is another song I did not know, but my punk boyfriend was definitely, he was like, oh, did you, did you see someone talking about TSOL, Cold Blue? I was like, yeah, it won't be me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm talking about Tom Jones. <laughs> I was going to, I was going to make a corpse fucking joke about Tom Jones, but it didn't come to mind. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> We had also talked in the chat. I just remembered we were talking about how Tom Jones sang Delilah for the Queen. <laughs> oh, he did! Yeah. Oh my gosh! He performed yeah. it at her Diamond Jubilee! <laughs> it's not appropriate Speaking for of corpses. <laughs> Speaking of corpses! Oh, what a delicious sag. <laughs> um, let's move on to the second sex crime the the especially heinous sex crime in the next hmm. song well it inspired a sex well it inspired sex crimes however i am going to make the argument that it's not about sex crimes and we'll get to that in a second so first of all this is acdc night prowler this is the song that inspired the notorious serial killer or allegedly inspired the notorious serial killer Richard Ramirez during his killing sprees in the 1980s. After one of the murders in uh, May of 1985, Ramirez left behind an ACDC hat at the scene of the murder, um, which was brought to trial. And then his friend also testified during the trial that Ramirez was a big ACDC fan. So those incidences, as well as the content of the lyrics or perceived content of the lyrics is what kind of, connected this song with Richard Ramirez's crimes. Um, and the song does appear to have a menacing sound and lyrics about sneaking around in the dark and entering into naked women's bedrooms and stabbing him in the back. There's a whole line about you don't feel the steel until it's hanging out your back, stuff like that. However, Angus Young cleared this up in an interview with Vulture. He said, People have made our tracks filthier than they were originally intended. Listen, the song isn't about any stalker or evil person. The idea came from when I was young, growing up in suburban Australia, we didn't have air conditioning and it was very hot, so if it was very hot night, I'd open up the window. There was an alleyway next to our house and I used to get all of these animal night visitors. Sometimes they'd jump on the window ledge or attempt to come in. I'd see their shadows on the wall and these animals were always having a party late at night. For me, they were the night prowlers. The idea behind the track was more about nature. People like to take something and make it into what it's not intended to be. So, there you go. Night prowler is about an animal party at night <laughs> in a child's bedroom. <laughs> and when you, in the steel, when it you can feel it. Hey, hey, hey. 
We don't even need to question that. It's about wallabies. Yep. Maybe mm-hmm. the steel is a metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> can't even say it with a straight. <laughs> it's also important to note that at the, so Nightcrawler starts with it starts in, and ends with two sounds. It starts with a very menacing like exhalation or inhalation, hard to tell. Um, but it's some kind of airflow going on for the mouth. <laughs> it is menacing. You know, it's a good word for it. it. It is quite menacing. You know, but maybe it's just like a wallaby. Making a little gasp when it's trying to alert you of its presence, like, hi, I'm coming <laughs> in the party. <laughs> and then it ends with this dumb, <laughs> fucking dumb Robin Williams reference that is the like catchphrase from Mork and Bindi. And this means that the last thing that we hear, like the one of the last recorded sounds that we hear from Bon Scott before his death, is a Robin Williams reference. And I think it must be, have been some kind of a tick that he had. Or you would just say nano nano or whatever. I, it's wild to listen to the whole song and get there and go, what? Yeah, and that was the end of the album. <laughs> so like, that's it. You, you hear that? Imagine listening to it at the time. You know, all the animals have already left your house. The party's over. <laughs> and then you hear... Nano nano, and then the record plays out, and then click, it goes off the turntable, and that's the end of Highway to Hell, y'all. That's that's the end of the album. That's the last we hear from Bud Scott, and then he died. It actually is wild how cavalier um, murder of women is in like all pop music since the beginning of pop music. Yeah, or even like standards and folk songs. Like, there's just it's just constant woman murdering and then some giggles. Well, it's because women's lives are not valued. But more importantly, <laughs> this song isn't about that. <laughs> this song is about animals having a party. How many times do I have to tell you? <laughs> just because Richard Ramirez doesn't know how to read between the fucking lines, doesn't mean that this song is about murdering women and other people. At night, in their beds. I'm not super sure he knew how to read at all. I don't know anything about that. That's that's for our true crime podcast. <laughs> he could read, actually. Not to be confused with our animal party. I'm being mean because he was, you know, also a limp dick dork, but... <laughs> well, no, we could be mean to... I think it's pretty okay to be mean to Richard Ramirez. But it's valid to be illiterate. Sometimes people are just illiterate. That doesn't make them a serial killer. I shouldn't make fun yeah, of Yeah, you're not bad if you're illiterate. You're just bad if you kill people. Don't kill people. Do you think, um... That you could learn to read while on death row? Me personally? (laughs) (laughs) Callie, I have your homework for this week is to learn to read while on death row. No, I'm just trying to segue to the next song, (laughs) which is about people on death row. Erica? That's my song. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I'm feeling extra gremlin right now. Okay. So, I know this is a music podcast, but I'm here to talk to you about a song featuring several crimes that's also a musical. So, I find musicals to be really polarizing. So, either you love this song and you already know it, or you hate it and you will never see it and you'll never listen to it outside of this podcast.
Um, quick recap of this song. First of all, it's Cell Block Tango from the Chicago soundtrack. Um, it takes place in the musical during Roxy Hart's first night in jail. Each of the six married murderesses of the Cook County Jail monologues about why they are there. And all except one ends with, I didn't do it. But if I had done it, how could you blame me? So when I was researching this, I thought maybe I would talk about Bob Fosse or maybe the writing of it or something. But instead, I ended up finding out some alternative casting choices. And you know what? That is the route we are going down today. So we all know and love Richard Gere as Billy Flynn. Correct? Yes? Yes. Yes. Okay. So for me... (laughs) I forgot he was in this. <gasps> he's so good okay so for me it really doesn't get better than that um fun fact he took tap dancing lessons for three months uh but i love it so anyway it's perfect it's flawless no notes however guess who the first choice was to play billy flynn you will not guess that it was michael jackson 2002 michael jackson was the first pick so he was ultimately not chosen because harvey gross weinstein thought that it would pull too much focus from the rest of the movie so they moved down the line to their next choice which was john travolta and john travolta turned it down and has since done interviews saying that he deeply regrets this (laughs) um so more fun trivia about this Catherine zeta jones was approached and she was asked to be roxy hart And she wasn't really familiar with the musical, but the one thing she did know was that Velma Kelly is the one who sings all that jazz. And that was the only reason she wanted to play that role specifically to sing all that jazz. (laughs) Didn't care about any other part of it. She was like, no, I just really want to sing that song. Um, And then there's a little bit more. Let's talk about clowns again for the third time. So John C. Riley is a clown enthusiast, and he insisted on designing Amos Hart's clown makeup for the song. And it was very important to him to incorporate the application of his tramp clown makeup into the song uh, in the in the musical in, uh, in the movie version of the musical. So in a Playbill interview in 2002, John C. Riley said that he actually did some clowning as a kid and he had a tramp clown character himself. And to bring this all home from that very same interview, he talks about where he grew up in Chicago, Illinois, that he had done musicals as a kid because, and I quote, that's all there was to do, musicals or crime. Clown crimes. Yeah. He well he did um he, he did talk there's a couple other interviews where he talks about the, the trouble that he would get into with his friends when he was little, like they stole like five hundred boxes of cereal from a from a train. See, that's what I'm talking about. Funny stuff. Stealing funny stuff is funny. Five hundred boxes of salt it will always be funny. That's true. I stole what? It was five hundred boxes of what? Cereal. Oh. It was like amazing. sugar smacks or something. That's a great move. Yes. Yeah. Love that. I stole a traffic cone when i was in high school and i don't know if it's stealing it's just out on the road anybody can take it so i took it put it in the trunk of my car and then my parents i lived with my parents and then my parents were like going through my car and they're like what is this here for and then they ended up <laughs> using it when they were moving and i was like see it's useful i was like yeah from the ohio department of transportation it is a crime to steal those you're not supposed to take them no 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 well i had one don't incriminate yourself on here what if it was two decades ago the statute of limitations is for sure there's statute of limitations yeah there's got to be a statute of limitations i don't have it anymore you can't prove nothing there's no photos of it yeah i would like to see someone try to prove that you stole a pylon in 1999 (laughs) wait they have a name i don't know i thought they were called pylons but Sometimes I think things that are incorrect. I just looked it up. Traffic cones, also called pylons. <gasps> oh my god, I can't <gasps> believe it. 
Witches, witches hats, road cones, highway cones, safety cones, channelizing devices, construction cones, or just plain old cones. <laughs> witches hats. I have never heard witches hats. Where, who is using that? I don't know. Me witches now. Hats? Uh, Bridget, let's finish her off. What yeah. you got? What's your last pick? My last pick is Kill Bill by SZA. I might kill my Music is so exciting right now because so many female artists are getting space to make like big, interesting music. And SZA is one of them. She has two albums out and they're both really cool. She is from St. Louis. She's Muslim and she studied marine biology in college, thus fulfilling every little girl's Lisa Frank dreams. But she did not finish her degree because she wanted to start doing music. Thank goodness. She is very connected to her Muslim faith, um, which kind of reminds me of fellow Baby Lee Roth alums, Prince and Nick Cave, who believe deeply in their religion outside their music, but it doesn't always mean that their music is about their religion. Although in the case of both Nick Cave and Prince, sometimes it is. Kill Bill is about killing your ex and their new partner, and it has lots of amazing lyrics, and it's just really, like, dense and lushly arranged, and her voice is, like, so interesting to listen to and so pretty, and this is a great sing-along song, and it's great for making TikToks, too, and it's great for just sitting and listening to. It's probably great if you yourself would like to kill your ex. Um, It's just a, it's a bop, as they say. Big fan. Good song to steal a pylon to. (laughs) (laughs) Have you ever been to St. Louis? I've driven through the Gateway to the West, but I've never spent any significant time there, no. I've been to Kansas City, Missouri, but not St. Louis, Missouri. I like Nellie. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I was waiting for you to bring up. Uh, The Lunatics? Which is... Yeah, the Saint Lunatics. <laughs> yeah, um, I had that album. It was one of one of my favorite CDs to put in my 1993 Nissan Sentra. <laughs> Pop that into your discman, plug it into the cassette tape adapter, put it in, and then hope it doesn't skip while you listen to fucking. Did you yeah, ever turn your bass up so loud that it made your car bounce and made the CD skip? <laughs> <laughs> Or I did make I car bounce, but like shake, shook it a little bit. Oh, I don't think so. I did blow out my speakers in my uh, one of my cars, though. You have to listen to music like really loud for that to happen. Mm-hmm. And then I just rolled around with it for like three more years. And I was like, it's fine. Do you think Nelly <laughs> and SZA are going to do a track together? No, because SZA <laughs> has way too much self-respect. <laughs> <laughs> and at least as of now, is not trying to ruin her career. Mm, that's later. Did you know that Nelly wrote a song for the 2007 Haunted Mansion movie starring Eddie Murphy? And there's a whole you music know, video for it. And it's sadly as if he did not see I did. the movie at all. <laughs> no, I did know this. And it's kind of a fucking jam. Like It, it, it is. It's called Is It IZ Space. Yeah, IT. It, it, fucking, it fucking rules. It's really fucking good. It's the the easy, music video is dumb easy. as shit. But also the Haunted Mansion movie is dumb as shit. So, you know. 
It's what else? What yeah, else? But, but the song expecting? rules. It might actually be my favorite Nelly song. I know. I have a question that I think we should end this podcast on. Okay. If you were a serial killer, what ACDC song would inspire you to kill? Um, well, recently I was watching Last Action Hero before bed, as you do. And I went to bed, like, as I was falling asleep, I heard Big Gun just echoing through my head. And I came to the conclusion that that would be the song. Not for any reason. And I just liked that in court, they'd be like, well, how do you, what do you think she was motivated by? And they'd be like, Big Gun. <laughs> Bridget? Um, it would be... I've got big balls because it's so stupid that it activates me like a sleeper agent. I just want to kill someone. (laughs) Mine would be, it's a long way to the top due to the pervasive bagpipe solo. (laughs) It's it's so loud. It's It's just so so loud. loud. (laughs) Doesn't need to be there. (laughs) It is so long too. But that's, I think it's that's so another one of those long. things. It's like built that's another one of those things that just fits into that. Like, what's the funniest thing you can do? And in a terminal bagpipe solo is the funniest thing you could ever do. Anyway, that's the podcast. <laughs> Follow us on Instagram at Baby Lee Roth Podcast. You can hear this podcast anywhere you want. It's allowed. It's a free country. Um, you can email us at babyleerothpodcast at gmail.com once again for your edification my name is Bridget these are my co-hosts Callie and Erica I'm Kelly. I'm Erica goodbye <laughs> <Not even new. laughs> no, no, no.